Tell us a tale of the old days, begged Sam. A tale about the elves, before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear more about elves. The dark seems to press round so close. I will tell you the tale of Tenuvial, said Strider. In brief, for it is a long tale of which the end is not known, and there are none now except Elrond that remember it aright as it was told of old. It is a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle-earth, and yet it may lift your hearts. It tells of the meeting of Baron, son of Berahir, and Luthien Tenuvial. Baron was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth when the world was young, and she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. Hey, 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 Tolkieners! I'm Danny J. And I'm Joel N. And this is Trevor D. And we are... Keep on Tolkien! Keen. Keen? Yeah, yeah. Keen. Yeah, buddies. How are you guys doing today? Hopefully this finds you well. We've got a uh, exciting episode for, for y'all today. Yes. This, uh, is, uh, this has been asked for by a few of you, actually. Yeah, this is... Over the years. I think this was originally a listener suggestion, and it's kind of been in the works for a while. We were just kind of... Kind of daunted at the undertaking. Yeah, but I, f- I forget who it was. I f- I feel bad now. Yeah, there's a <laughs> like there there is a lot of information in this one. Yes. Yeah, it's so really, it's really cool. Our episode today, we're talking about episode eighty four, and this is going to be first age references in the stories, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the whole book trilogy. Yeah, the the OGs, as it were. Yeah, it's super exciting. Now you might understand what we mean by daunting. Uh, taking on the task yeah it's a lot of pages to go through yeah so uh just briefly what do we mean when we say references to the first stage we're talking about any references to people places or events of the first stage that are made within the story of the lord of the rings and the hobbit books yeah so this does not include the foreword or the prologue or the appendices of any of the books this is strictly strictly within the narrative within the narrative i, yeah. I imagine if those were included it would be a lot more it oh would god be a lot yeah more. the appendix alone is just oh. you need like an itemized list yeah. and also just another disclaimer like we are certainly not claiming that these are all the references these are all the ones we could find these are all the ones that we could find in the amount of time we had to devote to this subject so. <laughs> Uh, the way we kind of did is we broke it down by like uh, keywords by subject matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, first, we're going to start off with a little bit about the first stage. Yeah. So like, yeah, what actually is the first stage? In case you're wondering. Right? Yeah, we're talking about first stage references. What is it? So the first stage, funnily enough, is not the first stage of time that was measured in Middle Earth. Wait, well, really? How much time happened before the first age? Actually, Trevor, it's the third time period yeah. recorded in Middle Earth. It's uh, kind of, kind of, uh, it's true. Yeah, it's kind of a strange. That, yeah, that's pretty weird. All right. Yeah. Um, after Middle Earth created, it was it entered the years of the Valar, which is uh roughly thirty five hundred years of the sun, like the standard years. Mm-hmm. And next came years of the trees, and that was that lasted about fifteen hundred years, and then we finally get to the first age quote unquote the first age of middle earth so you're saying 
there was about 5,000 years that happened before the first age. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Were all the years like the same length of time? Oh, no. Yeah. No, we really have no idea how long years were in the days before the first age. Right. Like, for example, the Valyrian years, they, they say it was roughly like 3,500, you know, 3,500 years. But what is, quote unquote, a year before the sun existed, right? A, val- a Valian year could really be like thousands of years of what we oh, know, yes. of, like years of the sun. So I was incorrect earlier. So th- that 3,500 years, that's 3,500 Valian years. Yeah, Valian years. So we have really no idea how long. No that idea. Was. So how that, that was a crazy amount of indeterminate time, yeah. But could we also assume that maybe those years were shorter than a regular year? Maybe. I, I guess you could, could say. Could go either way. I guess it I could mean, go I either guess, way. Yeah. We, yeah, you're right. I guess we don't. We just don't know. You're right. So it could, it could go either way. Okay. Well, that's well, that's the fun point, I guess. I heard you you had mentioned just earlier years of the sun. Like, is, is, that right. like, is it like real life? Like 365 days? Yes. Uh, it's actually exactly the same. 365.25 days. Yeah, we looked it up and it was, they even included leap years. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. And yeah, there's four seasons, uh, six by the Reckoning of the Elves. That's right. I like the real life consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, all right, then tell me what defines the start of the first age. Well, that's kind of actually. I'm glad you asked that question, Trevor. Good job. I, we have this whole outline about this. Uh, so it's actually kind of debated when the first age actually starts. Some people recognize it as the first rising of the moon. That's like the first vessel of light that entered the sky, really. And this is also when Fingolfin finished crossing the Helcarax and entered Middle-earth. This is also technically when the second spring of Arda begins. Right. So a lot of people tend to think that. But yeah. I feel like most people recognize it as the rising of the sun, right? That's what I always thought. That's what I always thought, Traditionally. Too. That, that yeah. kinda, I mean, that sounds like it makes sense since we defined years of the sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's a good baseline. Like a new age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, many also recognize it uh, as, yeah, the first rising of the sun, but that's also when Fingolfin's host enters Mithrim mm-hmm. and the race of men awaken Hildorian, which is a good reason why the first age should end- start there, right? Because that's when the second born, the children of Ilavatar, the final children of Ilavatar wake up yeah. into the world. Yeah. And yeah, when we start measuring by years of the sun. So that seems to make sense. Yeah, that's always what I thought. Like, I feel like that's what a lot of people really thought. Yeah. But it turns out, while we were looking into this for this episode, the purpose of this episode, we just wanted to be able to give a definition. It turns out there's actually some more information in the History of Middle-Earth, Volume 10, Morgoth's Ring. It actually states in there that the first age technically begins when the elves are created, when they first wake up in Years of the Trees, 1050. So technically there's actually an overlap between Years of the Trees and the first age. There's like a 450-year overlap. Yeah. Which I, that blew my mind. I always imagined years, like ages being, you know, strictly separate yeah. things. Mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah. The, I guess it's just a measure, a different way to measure ages, I guess. That kind of sounds like it might give a little more substance to how long the years must have been, though. Because, like, if we have the 450 year overlap and we know that, like, the first and second age and stuff are measured by, like, the 365 bit, that kind of sounds like it would make sense that the. The years are the the Valian years, right? Well, we're talking about years of the trees at this point, not Valian yeah. years. Yeah. Oh, and the Valian years were just the years of the Valar. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see that separation now. Yep. Yep. But I feel like after looking into that and and you know kind of soaking in that fact, it kind of makes sense that the first age would begin with the awakening of the elves. The first age is kind of like the age of the elves. Yeah, and I, I always figured that the ages one, two, and three were by the reckoning of the elves, right? 
That's what I always figured. Like the histories are I suppose that's kind true. of recorded by the elves. Yeah, yeah. 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 Record keepers and all yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So yeah, we learned something new, and that is that the first age technically starts in the years of the trees ten fifty. Yeah. There you go. The more you know. The first age is frequently just referred to as the elder days. It was a rich time in Tolkien's early work. It was a period of great prominence of the elves, in fact. Yeah, and the free peoples of Middle-earth prospered in the country known as Beleriand during the years of the First Age. And uh, unfortunately, the later years became a time period of intense darkness and uh, lots of tragedy and war. It was pretty shitty. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty shitty. So it started yeah. off great and it ended really, really bad. The first, yeah. the first Age was a roller coaster. It really was, yeah. It really was. And, and I know because you guys got me these books, right? Mm-hmm. And the first age includes the, the three famous early tales, the Baron Luthien, the Children of Hurin, and the Fall of Gondolin. That's yes. right. Those are known as the three chief tales of the Elder Days. Yeah. yeah. You've got the fairy tale love story, Baron and Luthien, and then you've got like the ultimate tragedy. Yeah. And then you've got uh, the Fall of Gondolin, which is kind of dark, but it's kind of It's more kind of like inspiring. A, it's kind of inspiring. Yeah, yeah, it's more inspiring. Yeah. Well, and and as the opening excerpt states, no like all tales in Middle-earth are, are sad. Right. <laughs> They're yeah, sad. Straight up. Yeah, so but these like like Trevor said, these three tales, those are the big ones and they're often referred to as quote the great tale the three great tales of the first age. Right. And I think you can actually buy all three of them in their independent book forms as a as a set now, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's what you guys got for me. We got actually for, for Trevor. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. That's fucking right. That's why. Speak yeah. of the devil. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's awesome. Thank you, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that was a welcome to the podcast gift for uh, for Trevor. Yeah, we highly recommend you guys check that out. If you haven't checked out the novel versions of all three of those, it's worth it. Yeah. So let's get into some references. You know why? Well, yeah. Why do you guys think there are so many references to the first age throughout the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings? So the events of the first age were essentially the first stories of Middle-earth, the fictional Middle-earth that Tolkien had ever written. Oh, so he, he didn't start with The Hobbit. No, 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 no. No, uh, actually in 1914, uh, Tolkien began working on stories that would become The Silmarillion. And then 23 years later in 1937, encouraged by his success with The Hobbit, Tolkien submitted to his publisher, George Allen and Unwin, a more developed version of The Silmarillion that he called The Quinta Silmarillion. Yeah, but they rejected it, saying it was obscure and too Celtic, quote. Yeah, what the fuck? Celtic? Yeah. And Edward Crankshaw, the dude that they got to write, to read this book, in my opinion, uh, he was super fucking racist. He immediately said it was Celtic art in that Anglo-Saxons found it per- perplexing. That's a pretty close-minded way to think. Pretty cl- Yeah, at, at best, he was a close-minded fuck, right? Yeah, and spe- I mean, with a name like Crankshaw, he just kind of sounds like an ass. Yeah, I'm a... I'm Mr. Crankshaw. My name is Edward Crankshaw. Thank you. <laughs> That's Mr. Crankshaw to you. That's Mr. Mr. Crankshaw. Uh, instead, George Allen and Unwin asked Tolkien to write a sequel to The Hobbit. Yeah, Tolkien began essentially to revise what uh, we know as the Silmarillion to kind of be a sequel, but soon he just kind of turned to making a whole new independent sequel, which became The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And we've got an excerpt here, a relatively long excerpt. We're actually going to split it between Trevor and Danny. And this is from the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, letter number 19. Yeah, and this is kind of uh, this is a response to that rejection letter. Yeah, this was Tolkien's response to that rejection letter when he was trying to get yeah. the Silmarillion published. So the part that I'm going to read is setting up the letter, and then Trevor is going to read the letter that Tolkien wrote. So here we go, guys. 
Tolkien lunched with Unwin in London on 15th of November and told him about a number of his writings which had already existed in manuscript. The series of Father Christmas letters which, had addressed, which he had addressed to his children each Christmas since 1920, various short tales and poems, and The Silmarillion. Following this meeting, he handed to Alan and Unwin the Quenta Silmarillion, a prose formulation of the latter book, together with the long unfinished poem, The Jest of Baron and Luthien. These were shown to one of the firm's outside readers, Edward Crankshaw, who reported unfavorably on the poem, but praised the prose narrative for its brevity and dignity, though he said he disliked its eye-splitting Celtic names. His report continued, It has something of that mad, bright-eyed beauty that perplexes all Anglo-Saxons in the face of Celtic art. These comments were passed on to Tolkien. My chief joy comes from learning that the Silmarillion is not rejected with scorn. I have suffered a sense of fear and bereavement, quite ridiculous, since I let this private and beloved nonsense come out. And I think if it had seemed to you to be nonsense, I should have felt really crushed. I do not mind about the verse form, which, in spite of certain virtuous passages, has grave defects, for it is only for me the rough material. But I shall certainly now hope one day to be able to, or to be able to afford, to publish the Silmarillion. Your reader's comment affords me delight. I'm sorry the name split his eyes. Personally, I believe, and here believe I am a good judge, they are good, and a large part of the effect. They are coherent and consistent and made upon two related linguistic formulae so that they achieve a reality not fully achieved to my feeling by other name inventors, say Swift or Dunze. Needless to say, they are not Celtic. Neither are the tales. I do know Celtic things, many in their original languages, Irish and Welsh, and feel for them a certain distaste, largely for their fundamental unreason. They are in fact mad, as your reader says, but I don't believe I am. Still, I am very grateful for his words, and particularly encouraged that the style is good for the purpose, and even gets over the nomenclature. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. What a class act, though. I would have really told those guys to go fuck themselves, especially with the Celtic shit. Right, yeah. Like, you dumb... I would have been like, you dumb motherfucker. You don't like, even you know what you're talking about. You don't about. even know what you're talking about. This isn't even Celtic. I know what Celtic shit is in the original language, and I don't even like it, so fuck off, is basically what he said. But in a real classy, kind of polite type of way. Yeah, I love it. So, although a major work in itself, The Lord of the Rings was only the last movement of a much older set of narratives that Tolkien had worked on since 1917, encompassing the Silmarillion in a process he describes as mythopia, mythopoia, mythopoia. That is a crazy fun word. Or uh, mythmaking. Or I'll myth just say that. Yeah. I think it's mythopia. Mythopia? I believe. Okay. The extra O throws me off. Yeah, it's mythopoia. from Mythopoia. Originally, Tolkien planned to write a story in which Bilbo had used up all his treasure and was looking for another adventure to gain more. That seems kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, it could have worked. You never know. I suppose. Yeah, but eventually Tolkien decided that the magic ring from the original Hobbit and its powers would be a better focus for the next work. And as the story progressed, he began to bring in elements from the Silmarillion mythology naturally. I mean, he already had so much of it written, mm -hmm. and we all know that he loved it, and he already wanted and tried to get it published. Like, it was... So much lore there. There was so much good lore, and he just used that as the backbone to build the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. 
Which is super sick. And The Hobbit as and, well. And The Hobbit as well, yeah. The the Hobbit, even though that came first and The Lord of the Rings has more Silmarillion inspiration, there certainly is a lot in The Hobbit. Yeah, still. It's, uh, there's a surprising amount of first-stage references in The Hobbit that uh, you know I didn't really necessarily pick up on. Yeah. It's, it's really cool that he kind of had this... Um sort of backbone to work off of like he planned a whole history out and then's like all right guys i've got the world let's tell some stories right. exactly i got the world and the languages let's go yeah well one of the things we've talked about in the past and uh, one of the many reasons people love tolkien and the lord of the rings especially is just because his writing style the way he references ancient events you know just like their history well, it's cool yeah. that you can even go back and read about these events in yeah. uh, in other books. And now these are all real events because he just decided to reference a bunch of shit he had already written. So yeah, it's, like, it's fucking it's, brilliant. It's a it was brilliant. It was fantastic, amazing for readers because you get to read the amazing Lord of the Rings and Hobbit, and then you're like, man, I wish that all that shit was real. And then you're like, oh wait, all that shit history shit is real. We can go read all those stories for real. Yeah, now, really, now we can, but originally you couldn't. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll talk a little we'll talk about, about that, that later. More. It really fleshes out the world regardless like but, if you're hungering for more you can get more yeah yeah let's get right into the hobbit yeah on that note let's jump right into these references so we're going to start off with the hobbit and uh, like we mentioned earlier we kind of broke this down by uh like keywords keywords or subjects that mm-hmm. we could find reference if we went through like all these books the lord of the rings and hobbit chronologically and listed every single time that would be it'd be difficult for us there'd be a lot of references in in writing and it'd be It'd be a lot. We thought it'd be easier to condense it down this way. Yeah. So let's let's our first keyword. Uh, one of the fir- great first age tales, right? Gondolin. Gondolin. Yeah. So Gondolin actually comes up in the Hobbit six separate times, like explicitly. Yep. Uh, three times in uh, chapter three, a short rest. Yeah. So in this chapter, this happens in uh, the third age, twenty nine forty one. This is when Thorn and company come upon the troll horde in the troll shaws in Eriador. This is uh, I think on their way to Rivendell, right? Correct. And uh, this is when Thorin, Gandalf, and Bilbo arm themselves with three strange blades that they found in the Horde. They seem to be very old, but in excellent condition. And we've got an excerpt from Roast Mutton about the trolls, read by Joel. There were lots of clothes, too, hanging on the walls. Too small for trolls, I'm afraid they belonged to victims. And among them were several swords of various makes, shapes, and sizes. Two caught their eyes, particularly because of their beautiful scabbards and jeweled hilts. Gandalf and Thorin each took one of these, and Bilbo took a knife in a leather leather sheath. It would have only made a tiny pocket knife for a troll, but it was as good as a short sword for a hobbit. These look like good blades, said the wizard, half drawing them and looking at them curiously. They were not made by any troll nor by any smith among men in these parts and days. But when we can read the ruins on them, we shall know more about them. I think it's pretty cool that they um, <clears throat> they end up taking the blades to Elrond in Rivendell. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, to, to figure out what they are. And he inspects them and names the blades from Gondolin in the First Age. Yeah, I think he, uh, well, because he is also a descendant of Tuor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, he could have been just like, give me those back. Oh, yeah, he could have claimed yeah. them as <laughs> Those are mine. Yeah, well, the two of the blades he names, uh, one of them is Glamdring, uh, and the other one is Orcrist. And uh, we have an excerpt about this part from Chapter 3 of Short Rest, read by Danny. Elrond knew all about runes of every kind. That day he looked at the swords that they had brought from the troll's lair, And he said, these are not troll make. 
They are old swords, very old, of the high elves of the west, my kin. They were made in Gondolin for the goblin wars. They must have come from a dragon's horde or goblin plunder, for goblins and dragons destroyed that city long ago. This, Thorin, the rune's name, Orchrist, the goblin cleaver, in the ancient tongue of Gondolin. It was a famous blade. This, Gandalf, was Glamdring, foe-hammer that the king of Gondolin once wore. Keep them well. Hell yeah, direct references to Gondolin, the Gondolin Blades. Yeah, dude. Even references the fall of Gondolin with the dragons and the orcs. Yep, yep. It's also mentioned one time in chapter four, Overhill and Underhill. Yeah, so this is the chapter where Thorn and company are sleeping in a cave in the passes of the Misty Mountains, and they're captured by goblins at night and brought to Goblin Town. Down, down, down to Goblin Town. Down to Goblin Town. And the Great Goblin becomes enraged when he sees the Gondolin blade that Thorin is carrying. And we've got an excerpt here from The Hobbit, Chapter 4, Overhill and Underhill. Read by Trevor. The Great Goblin gave a truly awful howl of rage when he looked at it, and all his soldiers gnashed their teeth, clashed their shields, and stamped. They knew the sword at once. It had killed hundreds of goblins in its time, when the fair elves of Gondolin hunted them in the hills or did battle before their walls. They had called it Orchrist, Goblin Cleaver, but the goblins called it simply Biter. They hated it and hated worse anyone who carried it. Murderers and elf friends, the great goblin shouted. Slash them, beat them, bite them, gnash them. Take them away to dark holes full of snakes and never let them see light again. He was in such a rage that he jumped off his seat and himself rushed at Thorin with his mouth open. The in red... Yeah, dude. He's not happy when he sees that blade. He goes right into like a blood rage. like Yeah. Yeah, straight berserk. Yeah. So Gondolin also comes up in Chapter 5, Riddles in the Dark. This is when uh, it comes up essentially when Bilbo draws his blade when he uh, first finds Gollum in Gollum's cave. Yeah, Gollum asks at one point Bilbo what he has in his hand, and he replies that it is a sword that came from Gondolin. Yeah, and Gollum essentially hates Sting for the rest of his life after that because of this interaction. Yeah. Just but a short little exchange like that. What do you got in your hand? Blade from Gondolin, blade motherfucker. From Gondolin. Yeah. Stay back. Nice little, it. nice little name drop. And this is a children's book, and he's still doing these first stage references. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Certain things don't come up that you think might come up in uh, The Hobbit. Uh, like, for, for instance, Eldamar, the, uh, the kingdom of the elves in Valinor, right? That's mentioned zero times. Uh, explicitly. However, in Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders, Eldemar is referenced under a different name, Fairy. So, uh, Eldemar, I mean, like, I haven't heard this, really, uh, before today. Is, is this a person? As a place? You, you said it was a, a kingdom of elves? Yeah, it's the kingdom of elves um, that um, live in Valinor with the Valar. Yeah, this is not something I ever really thought was going to, like, pop up in the hobbit when we started yeah. this review it's one of those surprising little but we things stu- we yeah. stumbled across this one and i was like oh my god this is this is straight up talking about like valinor and fucking eldmar and shit like yeah yeah and, and eldmar's not named after an elf right no yeah. <laughs> no, no, no i think it means elven home in, oh, uh, in okay Quenya, if i remember right i like that so essentially in this chapter the narrator begins to describe the wood elves that bilbo and the dwarves have just come across in mirkwood and the narrator goes on to describe the difference between these wood elves and high elves of the West. Yeah. 
And uh, we've got a, the, the excerpt for you from Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders. Joel's going to read it. The feasting people were wood elves, of course. They differed from the high elves of the West and were more dangerous and less wise. For most of them, together with their scattered relations in the hills and mountains, were descended from the ancient tribes that never went to fairy in the West. There, the light elves and the deep elves and the sea elves went and lived for ages and grew fairer and wiser and more learned, and invented their magic and their cunning craft and the making of beautiful and marvelous things before some came back into the wide world. I like that this, uh, this excerpt describes different elf types, like light elves, deep elves, sea elves. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Like, I've, I hadn't heard those, uh, those specific types of elves, because like, I know we had, like, the elves of the woodlands and stuff. But. Yeah, he's basically naming, so the light elves would be the, the Vanyar, yep. right? The, the Vanyar. deep elves are the, the Noldor, mm-hmm. and the sea elves would be the Teleri. Yeah, it's funny, because these are all, like, just kind of offhanded. You know, he calls it fairy, and he says, you know, sea elves. He's talking and, about the same shit. Well, he's talking about the same shit, yeah. He, yeah. Dropped, the, he dropped the three different elf houses from Valinio. The yeah. Noldor, the Teleri, and the Vanyar, and he's talking Noldor about... Noldor even means Eldemar. deep elf, I believe. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. This was just a, a reference that I've had forgotten about, and definitely surprised me when we stumbled across it in The Hobbit. Yeah. Weird, guys. Crazy See, shit. These little things, man. Yeah, in the same chapter, Flies and Spiders, the narrator briefly describes the origin and animosity between elves and dwarves, summarizing the story of the friggin' Nalgamir, you guys. Another surprise story that we didn't expect to find in The Hobbit, but we just found it after this reread. It kind of comes up. Yeah, so we've got an excerpt here from Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders, read by Danny. So to the cave they dragged Thorin, not too gently, for they did not love dwarves and thought he was an enemy. In ancient days they had wars with some of the dwarves, whom they accused of stealing their treasure. It is only fair to say that the dwarves gave a different account, and said it was that they only took what was their due, for the elf king had bargained with them to shape his raw gold and silver, and had afterwards refused to give them their pay. If the elf king had a weakness, it was for treasure, especially for silver and white gems. And though his hoard was rich, he was ever eager for more, since he had not yet had as great a treasure as other elf lords of old. His people neither mined nor worked metals or jewels, nor did they bother much with trade or with tilling of tilling the earth. All this was well known to every dwarf, though. Thorin's family had nothing to do with the old quarrel, which I have spoken of. Yeah, so this is just, again, talking about some uh, events of the first age, the story of the Nalglamir and uh, King Thingol and the dwarves and the death of King Thingol. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember in the Hobbit movie, they played it off as if this was some weird exchange between like the dwarven king of Erebor and Thranduil. Yeah. At some point with just like some random gems some, and some shit nonsense, like that. Yeah. Some nonsense. No, th- this was referencing some solid first age lore. Yeah. The story of the Nalglamir. The Nalglamir. Very cool reference in The Hobbit. Yeah. We also have some other tie-ins uh, that weren't quite like references, but them thing the thing being there is a reference in itself. Right, so, yeah. For example? For example, we have the Eagles of Manway. Yeah, the Eagles are featured prominently in The Hobbit, and they rescue Thorn and company from the wolves and goblins in the chapter out of the frying pan and into the fire. And uh, we've got a excerpt here for about this scene, out of the frying pan and into the fryer, read by Trevor. Eagles are not kindly birds. 
Some are cowardly and cruel. But the ancient race of the northern mountains were the greatest of all birds. They were proud and strong and noble-hearted. They did not love goblins or fear them. When they took any notice of them at all, which was seldom, for they do not eat such creatures, they swooped on them and drove them shrieking back to their caves and stopped whatever wickedness they were doing. The goblins hated the eagles and feared them, but could not reach their lofty seats or drive them from the mountains. Tonight, the Lord of the Eagles was filled with curiosity to know what was afoot, so he summoned many other eagles to him. And they flew away from the mountains, and slowly circling ever round and round, they came down, 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 toward the Ring of the Wolves and the meeting place of the goblins. Yeah, the eagles actually go so far as to get involved in the Battle of the Five Armies as well. Yeah, and this shows that it was important enough for the eagles to be getting involved. The Battle of the Five Armies was a big deal. Yeah, they typically don't involve themselves in things unless they're very important. Yeah, that's kind of, that was their policy back in the first age, too. They didn't involve themselves in very much. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, being that these are eagles of Manway, mm-hmm. um, would you say that some of these eagles probably lived for a very long time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it's not mentioned in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, but uh, the eagle um, who is the father of the Lord of Eagles is Thorindor, who is the uh, in the first age. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that's a that's an old eagle. Yeah. yeah. They, some of them were created before the first age. Yeah. Essentially back when Manway was wanting some of his own homies to watch over the skies. Yeah. That's what he wanted. Because, uh, yeah, uh, Aule had his dwarves. Yvonne had her ants. He wanted his eagles. Wanted his eagles. We got some eagles. I still think the dwarves are pretty fucking awesome, though. But, you know, whatever. whatever. Yeah. Let's talk about a, a little bit about uh, the Lord of the Eagles, Gwahir. Yeah, Gwahir. So it's mentioned in the Lord of the Rings books that he is the son of Thorndor, the Lord of Eagles in the First Age. Yeah. Thorndor has a lot to do with, uh, some, with, with some of the tales in the First Age. Yeah, because uh, he, right, he, he lived right by Gondolin, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, another character from The Hobbit whose existence is more or less a reference to the First Age, Elrond himself. Of course. He's a relic of the First Age. <laughs> Elrond the relic. He is, yeah, straight <laughs> up. Thorin and company stay in the house of Elrond, the last homely house east of the sea, in the chapter A Short Rest. Yeah, Elrond just being in the story, that's a tie-in in itself to the First Age. He was born in the year 532 of the First Age, back in the havens of Sirion. Yeah, he and his twin brother Elros were the sons of Eärendil and Elwing. And uh, we got that excerpt from The Hobbit, A Short Rest, where we uh, describe Elrond. He was as noble and as fair in face as an elf lord, as strong as a warrior, and as wise as a king of dwarves, and as kind as summer. He comes into many tales, but his part in the story of Bilbo's great adventure is only a small one, though important, as you will see, if we ever get to the end of it. I love that narration. Yeah, it's like uh, no story ever ends. Yeah, yeah. I just love the Hobbit. He he gets a, he. It's a children's book. You know, he has some fun little sass in the narrative. Yeah, I like it. But yeah, if we ever get to let's let's take his note. Let's actually end the Hobbit references there. Yeah, um, that's more than we thought we would find, but all we could find. All we could find. There <laughs> may be more. If there you if you know of any more, hit us up. Hit us up. Uh, give us a comment. Yeah. Let us know if you know of any more first stage references in the Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah. Throw it up on Discord. We could even discuss it. Yeah, we could. We very well could. But let's move on to the meat and potatoes here. The Lord of the Rings, the big boy. Yeah, this is the good one. This is the big one. 
Yeah, so let's first get into some things that you'd think would come up, but don't. Yeah, straight up. Like, uh, for example, the War of Wrath, the thing that ended the first age, the thing that ended the Elder Days. Not Didn't come up at all. Nope. Not that we could find at all. Zero mention. At least not explicitly anywhere. The term first age mentioned zero times. Yeah, they uh, seem to prefer the term Elder Days instead so, of first age. That, that's. That, I mean, I guess that makes sense, but that's yeah. also pretty strange. Like, yeah, they don't even clarify. They really weird. They don't use the term first age at all all and then also the anulindle you know the story of creation that seems like something that might i don't know you you'd think that might come up but it doesn't not explicitly however some parts of the anulindle are referenced in lord of the rings such as gandalf's speech in the two towers where he describes the creation of middle earth and the role of the valar and Maiar in shaping it yeah so there's some vague references to creation but, but never by name we never really seems, talk about the anulindle seems weird that he would even bring it up but not mention it by name gandalf says some pretty crazy shit uh, yeah fair enough he, he just drops knowledge sometimes and you can't can't stop it you just can't yeah so let's get into some some of the references in the lord of the rings and again there are many many this is not all of them yes um, but, but it's all we could find but it is all that we could find in the in our allotted time so if you guys know of any more that we missed let us know hit let us, us up know, yeah so we started off with, uh, like we mentioned earlier, we did some kind of by subject, by keyword, rather than going through the stories chronologically and touching on every single little one. Uh, so we're going to start off by talking about the Elder Days. How many times are the Elder Days talked about throughout the Lord of the Rings? And we found out that the Elder Days came up 16 times throughout the narrative of the Lord of the Rings, all three books. Yeah, one instance is one time at the uh, in the chapter at the sign of the prancing pony from the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, Elder days are mentioned when the narrator discusses the men of Bree. Yeah, Tolkien explains that the men of Bree were the original inhabitants of the Bree area, and they were descendants of the first men to travel westward from Hildorian, where where men originated. Yeah, some of those dudes we learned about in the last episode. Yeah, it's like a great migration, a sundering, if you will. Yeah. And he says that the Numenorians returned, excuse me, the narrator says that uh, later when the Numenorians returned to Middle-earth, they were surprised to find the Bree men still there. <laughs> it seems like they've been around for a while, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we've got a fun excerpt about this from uh, Chapter 9 at the Sign of the Prancing Pony from the Fellowship of the Ring. According to their own tales, they were the original inhabitants and were descendants of the first men that ever wandered into the west of the Middle World. Few had survived the, ter the turmoils of the Elder Days, but when the kings returned again over the Great Sea, they had found the Bree men still there, and they were still there now when the memory of the old kings had faded into the grass. Those people, they last. Yeah, I feel like if nothing else says the, the true hardiness of, of men, that this is one of them, like the, the Breelanders. Yeah. yeah, they weren't even high men. They were just middlemen. Yep. They last. So an, another good reference to the Elder Days uh, that we found, it was uh, in uh, Chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. The hobbits are discussing the Elder Days to distract themselves from the imposing darkness, and this is when Aragorn tells them about the tale of Tenuvial. Yeah. And we actually uh, read that tale for you guys in the opening excerpt. Yeah, if you recall. If you recall. It's lovely. That was one of my favorite First Age references in The Lord of the Rings, when Aragorn yeah. would like sing songs or yeah. tell them the tale of Baron and Luthien. Yeah, super cool. Very cool. It's kind of. It's also cool, like, um, I feel like there's several of these things throughout the books where like something of the past is mentioned, mm -hmm. but then never talked about again. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that he references, historical references that he just drops in there. It mm -hmm. just, I don't know what it's like adding 
you know, a little extra spice, you know, a little yeah. extra flavor. A little bit of first stage references. Mm-hmm. Makes things tasty. I wonder if he has like one of those cool grinders that grinds <laughs> a little up. Like, like a f- pepper grinder? Yeah, the fresh ground first stage references. You, you, need, a, you need some <laughs> fresh ground first stage references? <laughs> yeah. More? Thanks. You tell me when. You kept yeah. things spicy for us. Kept yeah. things fresh, too. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, the Elder Days is mentioned again in a song in the chapter Mini Meetings. It's a song that Bilbo, uh, uh, that Frodo hears Bilbo chant. Yeah, while well, they're hanging out in in Rivendell. In Rivendell, yeah. It's mentioned three times at the Council of Elrond, where uh, Elrond is recanting his memories of the Elder Days. Yes. Yeah, the Elrond and I mean the Council of Elrond. Everything comes up, right? Yeah, and we got an excerpt for something else that covers this later yeah yeah we'll, we'll hear we'll hear a little bit about, we'll hear this about his we memories. just didn't want to yeah. repeat some of these yeah because some of them so mentioned times. more than one thing right so, yeah. yeah and we want to get to as many subjects as we can as many references so yeah so the next one that we found for referencing the elder days there is one reference in uh the ringo south that's uh, book two chapter three yeah the elder days is mentioned when elrond states that the fellowship must be few in number because the strength of arms or numbers doesn't mean jack shit against mordor that's right. He even says that uh, even if he himself had a host of, quote, a host of elves in armor of the elder days, end quote, he says it would be to no avail against Mordor. So eventually, essentially, force is not an option. It's not a strategy. Yeah, we got to go stealth. Yeah, I, I mean, those stealth. those elves were badasses. Yeah, like, that was like the Oh, height. elves of the elder days? There's, I mean, they used to kill Balrogs and shit. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They had like they, flaming they, eyes and shit. All there. kinds yeah. of crazy stuff. They were powerful. Yeah, wild as shit. Um, elder days is mentioned three times in A Journey in the Dark when we're stuck in Moria. That's chapter four. Yeah, so this is when Gandalf explains that the, te- explains the text written on the doors of Durin are, quote, in the elven tongue of the west of Middle-earth in the elder days. Another name drop. Uh, he also mentions that, quote, the elven smiths helped from the Elder Days. And then also, uh, its Elder Days are mentioned again when Gimli sings for them the Song of Durin, which I love. Yes. But we have uh, sung the Song for Durin for you in the past. So we won't do it again here. No. <laughs> Even <laughs> though we want to. It's a good one. It's a good one. We want to. It's a long one. Also in the Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 6, Lothlorien. Lothlorien is compared to the Elder Days twice. And then also chapter seven, the mirror of Galadriel. Galadriel references Khazad Doom back in the Elder Days uh, while greeting Gimli. And then in uh, book three, moving on to there, in chapter two, the writers of Rohan, Aragorn compares the Fangorn Forest to the mighty woods of the Elder Days. Yeah, in the two towers there. The wild woods. And then in the chapter, the White Rider, Gandalf says, quote, a thing is about to happen, which has not happened since the Elder Days. The Ents are going to wake up and find that they are strong. Hell yeah. And that was one of those lines they pretty much ripped and put right into the movie. Yep. I, yeah. love, I love that one. I really like how that paints like uh, the, the trees. Because, like, I mean, a tree trunk is a very sturdy, hardy thing. And so like mm-hmm. having the Ents wake up and find that they're strong, like that'd be a crazy awesome awakening to have. Yeah, man. That they're forced to be... To be contended with. A forest to be contended with? That's what I heard. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Good one. Good one. All right. Let's shut it off for the night, guys. Uh, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Tip your waitress. <laughs> uh, let's get into the next one. It's oh, also, we got more. Yeah, we got more coming, baby. Elder, Here's a good one, though. Elder Days is also referenced uh, in, uh, in the Two Towers on the Window on the West. When Faramir discusses the Rohirrim with Frodo and Sam, the Elder Days comes up. And we got a excerpt from that chapter uh, by Trevor here. 
These are the Rohirrim, as we name them, Master of Horses, and we ceded to them the fields of Kelenardhan that are since called Rohan. And they became our allies, and have ever proved true to us, aiding us at need and guarding our northern marches and the gap of Rohan. Of our lore and manners they have learned what they would, and their lords speak our speech at need. Yet, for the most part, they hold by the ways of their own fathers and to their own memories, and they speak among themselves their own north tongue. And we love them, tall men and fair women, valiant, both alike, golden-haired, bright-eyed, and strong. They remind us of the youth of men, as they were in the elder days. I always love that excerpt, just the camaraderie. Yeah, just like, these are our homies for life. Like, you Yeah, know. we love them, and they yeah. remind us of... Of like, our ancestors. Of our ancestors back in the yeah. day when they were strong and pure. Yeah. And, and that was like the... Long-haired yeah. and blue-eyed and superior. Oh, no. Oh, no. That took a <laughs> turn for the worst. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, because we know that they're um, from the last episode that they are descendants of the uh, the uh, lesser group or the greater group. Yeah, mm-hmm. the greater group the greater of the group. northern uh, men. Yeah, and that splintered off, so they're the House of Hador, essentially. The golden hairs. Yeah. And again, it's nice to see them like keeping that strength throughout the ages. Yeah. yeah. yeah and dude. I mean, the House of Hador and the Rohirrim, they are known for being just big, stocky, fit, blonde-haired people. Like, hardy, hardy like Very hardy folk. Let's get into another keyword here. Luthien. Luthien. One of the greatest yes. uh, heroes of the first age, right? Right. So naturally, you know, the tale of Baron and, and Luthien, that's one of the most famous tales from the first age. Oh, yeah. So naturally, Luthien comes up a lot in The Lord of the Rings. We found her name to come up 14 times throughout the story. 14 times? 14, 14 times. Now, keep in mind, like, for example, one of these in one of these instances, her, her name comes up seven times just because... This is reference over song. and over and over. Yeah. Again. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Like if characters are having a conversation or something, like you would, yeah, yeah, yeah. you'd yeah, reiterate yeah, what you're yeah. saying over. Yeah. So like uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, a knife in the dark. The hobbits they discuss the elder days to distract themselves from the darkness, and this is when Aragorn tells them the tale of Tenuvial. We actually mentioned this uh, earlier before. Yeah, Aragorn even does them a kind of a favor, and he ties in the tale of Baron and Luthien with their very own story that they're living out right now, man. And we got a um, excerpt here. Read by Joel from A Knife in the Dark. There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin, for of Baron and Luthien was born Dior, Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing the White, whom Ea Rendil had, had wedded. He that sailed his ship out of the mists of the world into the seas of heaven with the Silmaril upon his brow... And of Eärendil came the kings of Numenor, that is, Westerness. So I, I always thought it was pretty cool that Aragorn is related to Elrond. Yeah, yeah. technically. Because yeah. Elrond like, is basically the father figure for a while, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he mm-hmm. raised Aragorn for the most part, yeah. And he is technically like his great, 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 great. He's, he's a great he's uncle. His uncle. He's yeah. an uncle. I don't know how many greats there is, but it's many a Many generations. Many, 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 yeah. many, like many. Yeah, but funnily enough, Aragorn doesn't mention that, like what you said, is that he is also a descendant of Baron and Luthien. That seems yeah. kind of weird. It's telling a mm-hmm. story about his family, and he's, yeah. just, he's not even like saying anything. He's like, anything. there are some alive who are descendants of them. He doesn't mention <laughs> like, uh, um, uh, uh, <laughs> this guy, right this here. guy. Who's got two thumbs and is Luthien's descendant? This guy. This guy. <laughs> yeah, he even carries the ring of bear here. Yeah, well, uh, he didn't have it at this point in the book, remember? 
Oh, he gave it to Galand or not Galand. That's right. Um, I keep forgetting that in Arwen. the book he gave it to Arwen for yeah. a while. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a thing. It's it's wild to think about. But it wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't wearing the war the ring at the time of the War of the Ring. All right, so let's jump into another Luthien reference. Uh, we've got Chapter Twelve, Flight to the Ford from the Fellowship of the Ring. So after Frodo has his original confrontation with the Nazgul, where he's wounded, uh, you know, they essentially they have to make their way to Rivendell, and, you know, things kind of come to a big climax at the fords, and at this point, Frodo has to ride alone over the fords of Brennan just to get over to Rivendell safely and get away from those Nazgul. Yeah, when Frodo crosses the river, it looks like he is totally fucked. Toast. The uh, Nazgul are hot on his trail, so he has no choice but to turn around and face him. He draws his sword and he shouts. And here's what he says from chapter 12, Flight to the Ford, read by Danny. By Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo with a last effort, lifting up his sword. You shall have neither the ring nor me. Yeah, he throws out straight up a reference to Luthien the Fair and then Elbereth, Elbereth. the, the Vala of the Stars. He's trying to, yeah. he's trying to draw as much... Yeah. You know, positive power in, in his corner of the ring as he can because <laughs> yeah. he's about to fucking faint. Yeah. We also have, uh, have it mentioned uh, in the chapter Mini Meetings, which is uh, the first chapter of the second part <laughs> of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, this is when Frodo essentially, the chapter where Frodo wakes up in yeah. Rivendell, you know. Where we, yeah, where we come back online. Where we come back online. <laughs> so at the house of Elrond, just prior to the Council of Elrond, this is when Frodo sees Arwen, the daughter of Elrond, for the first time. And she is one of the ones who is... Uh, she is it's basically described that she is the likeness of Luthien, again. Yeah, and we got an excerpt here by Trevor from the chapter, Many Meetings, Fellowship of the Ring. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Undamiel, for she was the even star of her people. Arwen even star. Even star. Yeah. So Beautiful. I, I just kind of like connected these dots, but so Aragorn being of the line of Luthien, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Falling in love with somebody who looks like Luthien. Correct. Well, actually is also related also to Also of Luthien. the line of Luthien. Also of the line of Luthien. Oh, oh is this incest? cousin fucking technically is cousin fucking this is technically this we, is we don't one, like to mention it because it's so many generations it's removed a, it's very removed it's like maybe far enough away it's not but it's sort of borderline but i mean it's technically yeah there's, I mean, there's some of, blood related they there. are technically there like cousins yeah but to i don't know what degree so i guess you could describe it as one more instance of cousin fucking yeah <laughs> sorry uh, sorry i just i just made that ruin, connection gotta ruin aragorn for everybody <laughs> wow thanks trevor soiled it <laughs> oh man elrond also discusses his lineage to uh in relation to luthien uh at the council of elrond in the fellowship of the ring we got a excerpt from joel but my memory reaches back even to the elder days Eorendil was my sire, whom was born in Gondolin before its fall, and my mother was Elwing, daughter of Dior, son of Luthien of Doriath. I have seen three ages in the west of the world, and many defeats, and many fruitless victories. Yes, indeed. You've seen a lot of sad shit. But I yeah. like his, his description just saying fruitless victories, like mm -hmm. not every win is a win is a true dub well yeah. i mean from his perspective 
He's one of the Noldor, one of the few. So, like, his people have been fighting darkness and dark lords since years of the trees. You yeah, know? literally. I, I forget, was, was Elrond around for any of the kinslayings? Yes. Um, he was a refugee of the oh, that's last right. one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, mm-hmm. yeah. That guy's seen some shit. He has been. Yeah, as a child, had to escape <laughs> the kinslaying and then was kidnapped for years. That, yeah. Rem- yeah. It's, it's all coming back to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's lived some shit. So Luthien also comes up again in uh, Chapter 3, The Ring Goes South. And in this, the narrator mentions that the night before the Fellowship left Rivendell, they heard the full lay of Baron Luthien, which we are not going to do here. <laughs> it is very long. You should look it up in the Lays of Beleriand. Yes. It's it's, it's beautiful, great. though. It's as, great. As Aragorn says, it may give you hope. It may. Very mo may. It may lift your spirits. So Luthien also comes up, uh, oddly enough, in Shelob's lair uh, in, in at the end of uh, The Two Towers. The narrator explains that Shelob is, li- is like the evil spider form creatures of the First Age that Baron fought on his way to Doriath to meet Luthien. Yeah, we've got an excerpt from that chapter, Shelob's Lair, read by Danny. There age long she had dwelt, an evil thing in spider form. Even such as once of old had lived in the land of the elves in the west, that is now under the sea. Such as Baron had fought in the mountains of terror in Doriath, and so came to Luthien upon the green sward amid the hemlocks in the moonlight long ago. How Shelob came there, flying from ruin, no tale tells. For out of the dark years, few tales have come. In the dark years, that would have been when Morgoth was taken over? I think they're talking about the second age, right? Like the end of the first age, yeah, I think. Yeah, like immediately about? after the end of the first age. Like anything dark. after the Nirnath is, I think, what they're talking about, right? Yeah, pretty think, much. yeah, history goes pretty dark for a while, especially while the Numenorians are away. Mm, uh Okay, let's move on to the next chapter, shall we? Yeah, so chapter nine, the last debate. So this is in The Return of the King. Uh, Legolas describes how noble Aragorn is and says, quote, for is he not of the children of Luthien? Yes, he is. He sure is. Luthien also comes up in uh, Many Partings, chapter six of, uh, what is this, Two Towers, right? The Return of the King. Return of the King, sorry. Arwen states that she will not go with her father to the Havens and leave Middle-earth. She says, quote, for mine is the choice of Luthien. Oh, how poetic. Yeah. Essentially, she's choosing uh, mortality to mortality. stay with her love. Just like Luthien did. Just like Luthien did. Hey, I, hey, again, like this is just the thing that their bloodline does, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. So that was a lot of Luthien references. Let's jump to uh, another first stage character who is frequently referenced throughout the Lord of the Rings. That's Eorendil. I have a question about the pronunciation of this. Eorendil? Is it deal or dill? Deal. It is deal, Eorendil? Eorendil, yeah. Okay. Cool name. Like a lot of names. I know I say that a lot, but I, I just love the names and a lot of the, the descriptions. The Star of High Hope, right? He's mentioned ten times. Ten times throughout The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, first time uh, is twice, actually, in the chapter A Knife in the Dark of the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, the hobbits discuss the Elder Days to distract themselves from the darkness. Yeah, we've mentioned this uh, a few times now. This is when Aragorn tells them the tale of Tenuvio. And when he tells them that tale, there's a lot of references to the First Age. Yes. And uh, it also comes up in many meetings. That's from uh, Book 2. That's uh, the Fellowship. Uh, Arendil's mentioned in Bilbo's song, the song that Frodo hears Bilbo chanting while they're in Rivendell. 
Also, Bilbo mentions Arendil when he explains to Frodo that Aragorn had told him that, quote, If I had the cheek to make verses about Arendil in the House of Elrond, it was my affair. I suppose he was right. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> I always love that. Bilbo's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, he does. Uh, we also have another uh, reference to Arendil at the Council of Elrond. Uh, Elder- Elrond uh, mentions that his dad was Arendil, which we, we read that excerpt for... Just a few minutes ago. We did, yep. He's got an incredible memory. He does. Yeah, for being so old. Holy yeah. crap. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to remember all that shit. You must take those, like, what, ginkgo supplements? The memory, yeah. the memory vitamins. Yeah, or yeah memory vitamins. <laughs> I feel like his brain has to be a black hole, for for sure, with how dense of the information oh, he's got to yeah, remember. Dude. Oh, yeah. All around the singularity. Yeah. <laughs> Another singularity to, uh, that Trevor has pointed out in the <laughs> Tolkien universe. So Arendil also comes up in uh, the Mirror of Galadriel in The Fellowship. And in this part, the narrator describes the scene as Frodo and Sam follow Galadriel down to the Mirror of Galadriel. Essentially in this scene, the narrator states that, quote, Arendil, the evening star, most beloved of the elves, shone clear above. So bright was it that the figure of the elven lady cast a dim shadow on the ground. Its rays glanced upon a ring about her finger. It glittered like polished gold overlaid with silver light, and a white stone in it twinkled as if the even star had come down to rest upon her hand. Yeah. Arendil also comes up in the chapter Farewell to Lorien in the Fellowship of the Ring. When Galadriel presents Frodo with the vial of Galadriel, she says, In this vial is caught the light of Arendil's star, Set amid the waters of my fountain. Yeah. Did you hear that, Joel? I did, yeah. It sounds like there was uh, some light that was set amid the waters of oh, her fountain. That's what you got from that? That's, that's yeah, you know, I'm just. Because what the correct answer and what everyone else gets from <laughs> it is that the light is caught in the file because the Noldor have the technology to capture light in gemstones yeah they do they I sure don't, i don't know I man mean, they sure do have that but why I does mean, everyone think it's the water it, it, it kind of sounds like like the lights reflecting off the water and when you scoop that up it's capturing the I light like in the if, water if that were the case tolkien would have mentioned it he I mean, literally uh, says right here in this file is caught the light of Arendil's star are you talking about the light that was set amid the waters is that the light we're referencing? <laughs> or are it's we the, it's the light it that's says it's caught in the file right there, man. Right, but it's in the volume of space inside the vial where the water would be, right? No, it's not. It's in the glass. Oh the, my god. He's claiming You could fill it with okay. anything. You could fill it with perfume. You could fill it with wine. You could fill it with piss. Yeah, but see, I don't but, care. But see, but then you'd have to have that light shining off the piss, right? And then you'd have the It'd light be golden. Of, the, <laughs> the water <laughs> is at best like a good luck charm that is cool and it would you know she probably put bleach in it so it would amplify the light you know so this know. is this is an old beef that me and danny had. danny believes that the the file of galadriel the light of arendil that comes from the file he believes the light is contained within the crystal like glass of the file it's itself. a work of the Noldor. yeah which they, they do they do that they, they do, do that. that they do that why does everybody think it's in the water i just i, I just think i it's just always been my opinion that <laughs> that the light was caught in the water of her fountain and she scooped it into the file, hence why it even is a file and not just a rock. Uh, no, and, and, no. And then, and then that's, that sentence right there, in the file is caught the light of Arendil's star set amid the waters of my fountain. <laughs> 
Sorry, Danny. I, I got to side with Joel on this one. I think you're all wrong. I think it's in the glass vial and the water is just to like amplify the light. I guess we'll never know, really. Yeah, it'll be forever a Tolkien Outside mystery. of that explicit <laughs> statement right there. But I mean, you know. See, I read the explicit statement completely explicitly the other way, so I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just... Uh, isn't English it's a, fun, it's a, guys? It's a beef that could go on forever. Okay. Well, Eärendil also comes up later on in the story. <laughs> <laughs> At the stairs of Cirith Ungol. Sam mentions Eärendil when he talks to Frodo about the story of Baron and Luthien. And then uh, Eärendil uh, also comes up in the chapter Shelob's Lair when Frodo says, well, he, you know, he holds up the file and he tries to light it up and he says that blessing. Yeah. Yeah, Ankalima. What does that remind you of? Let's do a language lesson. That that sounds actually familiar. Queen of Numenor? Oh, that's not Ankalime, right? Tar Ankalime. Yeah. That means that means brightest. Brightest? Yeah. So her name means one who's brightest. So hey there, Aerendil. No, I'm just saying Ankalima means brightest. So he's saying hail Aerendil, brightest of stars. Brightest of stars. I was trying to translate it in my head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Ankalima means yeah, uh, bright. So her name means brightest. Uh, I, I realized that when I was reading this earlier. The narrator does describe the file of Galadriel lighting up, though. Uh, and of course. Yeah. The crystal from, lights up. In the two towers, Shelob's lair, it stated, for a moment it glimmered, faint as a rising star, struggling in heavy earthward mists. And then its power waxed, and hope grew in Frodo's mind. It began to burn and kindled to a silver flame, a minute heart of dazzling light, as though Eärendil himself come down from the high sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it until it seemed to shine in the center of a glove of airy crystal, and the hand that held it sparkled with white fire. Wow. I mean, that's, wow. regardless of how we think it's lit up, that's a pretty right. darn cool that's way cool. to describe how it lights. It yeah. sounds beautiful, honestly. Yeah. So, uh, the light of Arendil is technically what? A Silmaril, right? Yeah. That name also comes up, or that word also comes up eight times eight in The Lord of the times. Rings. Eight times. So it first comes up three times in the chapter A Knife in the Dark, uh, an event we've already referenced a few times. This is when the hobbits are discussing the Elder Days to distract themselves from the darkness, and Aragorn tells them about the tale of Tenuvial. Yeah, we're actually going to do a companion piece for this episode where we read this, uh, so look for that in the feed. Hopefully yeah. it'll be with this episode, if not, shortly after. That, that particular chapter seems to make a lot of first-age references. Mm-hmm. It yes, does. Yeah. it really does. It's because that chapter contains the entire like song of Tenuvial that yeah. Aragorn sings, so there's a buttload of references yep. just right there. Yep. Uh, so the Silmarils also come up twice in the chapter Many Meetings. This is another song. Uh, the Silmarils come up in Bilbo's song that mm-hmm. he's chanting in, in Rivendell, that yeah. fro- the, the song that uh, Frodo overhears him chanting. Yeah. It's also mentioned at the stairs of Kirith Ungol. Sam mentions the Silmaril twice when he talks to Frodo about the story of Baron and Luthien. And we got that zerped, uh, read by Joel from the Two Towers, stairs of Kirith Ungol. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Eärendil and... Why, sir, I never thought of it before. We've got... You've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? Yeah, if that's not a first-age tie-in, I don't know what the fuck is right there. Yeah, he's basically saying that what they're going through is still part of that tale. 
Yeah. The, I love that it's another time where it's stating like these stories don't end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like it's you know what whatever is happening, it's still going on. Like on you know, a lot of the stuff never ends. Mm-hmm. Never ending tale. Never ending story. Yeah. <laughs> Heartbreaking movie. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> oh, uh, the similar also comes up again in She Lives Lair. Uh, Naturally, it's mentioned as the narrator describes up lighting the this describes the lighting of uh, the file of Galadriel. Yeah, we've read a little excerpt from that scene before you already, so we won't go over it too much more. So another uh, subject that comes up, another place that comes up a few times throughout the Lord of the Rings, Eldamar, Eldamar, and it's mentioned four times. And just for those, just to review, Eldamar is essentially the. Uh, place where the elves live in Valinor. Yeah, on the island of uh, on the continent of Amon itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yeah. so as opposed to Tol Arisea, mm-hmm. which is an island just close to the, Yeah, no, this is yeah. on the continent of Valinor. These are the people who are living life, great. Living in Eldamar. Do you so, think do you think you could have seen Eldamar from Tol Arisea? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah they're very 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just looking over the sea. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's you so can see cool. Tyrion and yeah. Oh, that's right. Because oh, right, say it was just kind of like out in the bay. Right, and it'd of. be at this time that worth the the world was still flat, right? Um, Not in the Third Age, no. No, but this is this is just a oh, mentioning when of when that, Eldemar right? was a thing. Yeah, I mean Eldemar is still a thing into the Third Age, but it was at some points a flat world. Yeah, when it yeah at one point, yeah, yeah. At one point, you might have been able to, yeah. So when the world was rounded, you could no longer probably see. Than from Tolerasea. You probably still could. You probably could. It's pretty really damn close. close. Oh, so they're that okay. It's yeah. like right off the Tolerasea is right off the shore from Eldemar. It's like basically. the vacation spot from Valinor. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like like Hong Kong or something, like right off the coast of China. <laughs> you know. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So Eldemar comes up four times throughout the Lord of the Rings. First time is in again the book or the uh, chapter many meetings when Bilbo chants his song in Rivendell. Yes, of course. Is also mentioned in uh, Farewell to Lorien when Galadriel sings as the Fellowship leaves Lothlorien. Yeah, and this was a is a beautiful song that Galadriel sings, and we've got an excerpt from that chapter, Farewell to Lorien, read by Danny. In the midst of that vessel sat Celeborn, and behind him stood Galadriel, tall and white. A circlet of golden flowers was in her hair, and in her hand she held a harp, and she sang. Sad and sweet was the sound of her voice in the cool, clear air. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. Beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea, and by the strand of Ilmarin there grew a golden tree. Beneath the stars of Evereve and Eldemar it shone, and Eldemar beside the walls of Elventirion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years, while here beyond the sundering seas now fall the elven tears. O Lorien, the winter comes, the bare and leafless day. The leaves are falling in the stream, the river flows away. O Lorien, too long I have dwelt upon hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. But if of ships I now must sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? It does kind of sound like a, a pretty sad song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. She stayed too long, and now she's not sure she'll ever make it to Valinor. Very sad. Yeah. Well, we've got the last time that uh, Eldemar is mentioned in uh, Chapter 11, the Palantir. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, Pippin asks incessant questions of Gandalf as they ride to Minas Tirith. And Gandalf tells him about many things, including the Palantir. And uh, we'll go further into detail in that in the Feanor section. Yeah, yes. we'll get a little more into that scene in the Feanor section. Yes, there's a Feanor section. Spoiler you alert. You guessed it. Yeah. Feanor. Feanor. Dun, 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 dun. We should have a theme song for Feanor. <laughs> Feanor. A Feanorian theme song? Hell Feanor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's get into another thing. It was mentioned uh, quite a few times in The Hobbit, so uh, Gondolin is mentioned three times in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it might actually be mentioned more times in The Hobbit than it is. It is, yeah. It was six times, I believe, in The Hobbit. Right? Yeah. So that's kind of funny. So the first time Gondolin comes up in uh, The Lord of the Rings is naturally the Council of Elrond. So while retelling the history of the Elder Days, this is, again, when Elrond mentions that his father is Eärendil, who is from Gondolin. Yeah. In A Journey in the Dark, Gondolin is mentioned when Gimli recites the Song of Durin. Love that song. And in The Mirror of Galadriel, uh, Gondolin and Nargothrond are mentioned when Galadriel explains to the Fellowship how old both her and Celeborn are. She's yeah, pretty we, old. Yeah, she's pretty freaking old. And uh, <laughs> we got a zerped here from The Mirror of Galadriel, read by Trevor. Yet, not in vain will it prove, maybe, that you came to this land seeking aid, as Gandalf himself plainly purposed. For the Lord of the Galadrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth, and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the west since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond, or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains, and together through the ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. I love that. Another really depressing phrase, fought the long defeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fruitless victories to long defeat. Yeah! But yeah, she's she's been around for a long... Both her and Celeborn have been around for a long time. Long, long time. So let's get right into it. We, man- we mentioned it earlier, the Feanor section. Feanor section, yeah. Yeah, Feanor is mentioned three times in The Lord of the Rings. So first time comes up in A Journey in the Dark in The uh, Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf explains, again, the symbols on the doors of Durin to the rest of the Fellowship, and he explains that uh, one of these symbols is, quote, the star of the house of Feanor. We can, you know, imagine that that was put on there by uh, Celebrimbor, being his grandson. Being his grandson, of course. And and the password for that door was Melon. 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 Yeah, friend. The word. Elvish word. The sender in word for friend. Yeah. Um, Feanor also comes up when they're talking about the Palantir. Pippin asks a whole shitload of questions to Gandalf as they ride to Minas Tirith. It's it's uh, Exposition City, that chapter. <laughs> I love it, yeah. Um, Gandalf tells him about many, many, many things, including Feanor. Gandalf's got some cool knowledge to drop. Yeah. We got a uh, small zerp uh, from the Two Towers, The Palantir by Joel. The Palantir came from beyond Westerness, from Eldamar. And the Noldor made them. Feanor himself maybe wrought them in days so long ago that the time cannot be measured in years. Yeah. So the you Palantir are old. The Palantir are old, and they're made probably by Feanor. That's so friggin' cool. They last a very long time, too. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, it, it, dude, when, uh, when Wormtongue throws it off of the balcony... It smashes, it bends the railing, and it's the ben, the railing bends and snaps, and it smashes the, the stair that it lands on, and it's, like, unscathed. Okay, so they're also dense as fuck. Yeah, they're made of yeah. some kind of glass that's, like, hella dense, yeah. Well, just in general, it seems like uh, Noldorn craft is 
insanely durable. Insanely. Their weapons, their jewels. I mean, you think when you live so long, you'd want durable items, right? Yes. You, yeah. They would need to be. Could yeah. you imagine if they had like our shitty clothes and stuff that wore out in like you know a couple a couple years or whatever? They'd be buying new clothes and shit all the time. Well, okay, so I remember. Uh, uh, was it was it Pippin? Who picked up the Palantir and the... Yeah, correct. Right? Okay, so if if just dropping that has enough to bust a railing and break a, a stairs, like, but it's not heavy. That, that's what's weird about it. That, that yeah. thing is loaded with some kind of magic. Because Pippin right? is able to pick it up, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. Crazy. The Palantirs kind of scare me, if I'm, if I'm being honest. If I'm being honest, they're kind of <laughs> yeah. spooky. Yeah. But let's jump to uh, another subject that comes up only twice. Well, only directly twice. They kind of mentioned the land of the West underseas a lot, but yeah. Balerian we're talking about. Of course. I, I can't not hear that in the Minterd. Balerian. 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 Every time. So Balerian comes up explicitly <laughs> two times throughout the Lord of the Rings. First time being, of course, what else? The Council of Elrond. Yeah. Uh, so we'll give you an excerpt from the Council of Elrond this time. So Elrond recants his memories of the Elder Days, and he uh, name drops Beleriand. Here's an excerpt from that chapter read by Danny. I remember well the splendor of their banners, he said. It recalled to me the glory of the Elder Days and the hosts of Beleriand. So many great princes and captains were assembled, and yet not so many, nor so fair, as when Thangorodrim was broken and the elves deemed that that evil was ended forever, and it was not so. The long defeat, right? Yeah. Yeah, evil seems to persist. Persist. It Fruitless does. victories. Yeah. And it's and it's patient. I remember this. It's very patient. Yeah, evil's mm-hmm. patient. Uh, Balerion comes up again in uh, Shelob's lair. Frodo explains to Sam that the sword's sting was forged in Balerion where spiders were commonly found in the Mountains of Terror, and that might help them now. It might, yeah, it might be made for this. Yeah, it might be made for this exact fucking thing. So we got an excerpt from Shelob's Lair by Trev. Come, let us see what Sting can do. It is an elven blade. There were webs of horror in the dark ravines of Beleriand where it was forged. But you must be the guard and hold back the eyes. Here, take the star glass. Do not be afraid. Hold it up and watch. Yeah. For the eyes. Poke them in the eyes. Um, Valinor, you know, famous place as well. Yeah, that Land. comes up twice. Yeah, it comes up twice. First in chapter uh, uh, one um, of book two, many meetings. Valinor mentions it in Bilbo's song once again. That Bil- <laughs> Bilbo's song mentions a lot of first age. It does. Show. Yeah, mentions I'm noticing it. that. Yeah, his song is basically about the first age. So yep. it's a long song. Bilbo seems to know a lot more than I feel like you'd expect him to know about mm-hmm. the past. Yeah, he loves lore. Yeah, he does. He, oh. Yeah, he would be a Hobbit lore master if there was one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He lived long enough. Yeah, it's true. So Valinor comes up explicitly in many meetings. It also comes up explicitly in many partings in The Return of the King. So in many partings, the narrator briefly describes a scene of King Aragorn and Queen Arwen sitting by the fountain in Minas Tirith and describes Arwen as, uh, quote, singing a song of Valinor. Yeah. Must be beautiful. It must be beautiful. My favorite guy of all time from the first age, yeah, Turin. He's mentioned twice, believe it or not. Yeah, Turin even comes up in the Lord of the Rings. Of course, it's in the Council of Elrond. Of course. Where everything comes where up. everything comes up. And uh, Elrond honors Frodo with a high compliment during the Council of Elrond. And uh, here is a quote from that part. 
But it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you, but if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin, and Baron himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. That is some high praise. The nicest thing I've ever heard. It's also several first aid references and another quote. Yeah, yeah. All, all in a all in a nutshell, right there. We name dropped four people. Yeah, Hador, the namesake of the House of Hador, Hurin, Turin, and Baron. Yeah, all great elf friends, all great heroes, huge heroes. Yeah, so to be compared to those four is like one of the biggest biggest compliments yeah. I feel like an elf can give you. That's, oh yeah, that's, that's crazy high praise. Oh yeah. Um, let's see. Choices of Master Samwise. The narrator uh, describes the resilience of Shelob during the fight between Sam and Shelob. We got a zerped here from Choices of Master Samwise from Joel. But Shelob was not as dragons are. No softer spot had she save only her eyes. The blade scored her with a dreadful gash but those hideous folds could not be pierced by any strength of men, not though elf or dwarf should forge the steel or the hand of baron or Turin wield it. Yeah. Wild, uh, right? I, I didn't actually expect Shelob to be that resilient. That's yeah, like, yeah, she's like a spider demon. That's, yeah, like, that's like AC of 30. It's like way, yeah. way high. Yeah. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, the way that Sam ultimately wins the battle is kind of like what you're supposed to do with with bears you know use let their them power. use their weight against you, you. let them yeah. use their weight against, against your weapon because uh, you don't have that much force but fall on my sword did, exactly fall yeah. on my sword wait didn't didn't somebody die that way we're in actually Tur- Turin, the, yeah the guy, the guy we're talking about <laughs> yeah. oh yeah Turin committed suicide that way yeah <laughs> yeah you're right, you're right. On the sword, sound yeah. tactic oh, i guess boy um, Morgoth is mentioned only one time in the Lord of the Rings. One time. And this really? is one of the lines that actually made it into the movie. Yeah, it's in the extended edition, but not the theatrical. How, ah, okay. how, how is some evil so prominent in Middle-earth only mentioned once? By name. By yeah, name. I don't know. Weird, right? So um, it was in the Mirror of Galadriel. And what the quote is, it's a short one. Quote, it was a Balrog of Morgoth, said Legolas, of all elf banes, the most deadly. Save the one who sits on the dark in the dark tower. Yeah, I'm sure we all remember that scene from the movie where Legolas is like, "It was a Balrog of Morgoth." I think then he goes, he says, "We went needlessly into Moria or whatever." But yeah, which he doesn't say. This is a cool line of all the elf banes most deadly, save essentially Sauron. Yeah. Then we got a bunch of random first age words here, guys, and they all come up once, and it's in one fucking excerpt. And guess who it's from. And guess who it's from. Exposition in a trunk. In a trunk. <laughs> Treebeard. Treebeard <laughs> himself. Who Who do you think would be spewing all sorts of random ass, like old elvish words from the first age? Of course it's yeah. Treebeard. And those words are Dorthonian, Assyrian, Neldoreth, Nan Tarsarian, right? Is that how you say that? I think so. Tarsarian. Atar Naneldor, Orod Nathan. In Taurimornalome. Essentially, shit. yeah. Essentially, these are all just fancy elvish names for, for a bunch of the first a bunch of different regions in Beleriand. And uh, we've we're going to actually have uh, Trevor read off this poem, Treebeard's poem here. So this is from the chapter Treebeard from the Two Towers, Book Three, Chapter Four. 
In the willow meads of Tasarinan, I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring in Nantasarian, and I said that it was good. I wandered in the summer in the elf elm woods of Assyrian. Ah, the light and the music in the summer by the seven rivers of Osir, and I thought that was best. To the beaches of Neldareth I came in the autumn. Ah, the gold and the red and the sighing of leaves in the autumn in Tower Naneldor. It was more than my desire. To the pine trees upon the highland of Dorthonian I climbed in the winter. Ah, the wind and the whiteness and the black branches of winter upon Oradnathan. My voices went up and sang in the sky, and now all those lands lie under the wave, and I walk in Amborona, in Taurimorna, in Aldalome, in my own land, in the country of Fangorn, where the roots are long, and the years lie thicker than the leaves in Taurimornalome. Jesus Christ, shut the fuck up, right? <laughs> like, That's a oh lot of... Oh, my God. And none of these places, like, exist anymore, right? Like, they, they got... <laughs> right, yeah. they all And they have no frame of reference for what the fuck these places are. Yeah, anything. the poor like, two hobbits that have to listen to is this. Is this a gobbledygook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a word for it. Gobbledygook. I love that extended scene in the movie where he recites that poem, which I think he still recites in the book, too. Yeah. But then Frodo... Or, uh, uh, Pip and, and Mary fall asleep. Yeah, they just fall asleep in the. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I would do. It's funny, me and Joel had a priest back in high school that sounded a lot like Treebeard. In the name of, of the, the Father and the Son. Yeah, it was bad, you guys. I fell asleep standing <laughs> up several times like a horse. Priest Treebeard. Okay. Yeah, I actually had to move that guy's books one time. Me and my me and my brother. Well, we were we were altar boys at the at the, at the church, so we had to do we had to, <laughs> back we had in the to day. Do, we had to do boy. manual labor. So we we actually helped with that particular priest move one time. He was moving from like one place to another, and holy fucking shit, that guy had so many books. Yeah, I have. He never, was a smart guy, from what I heard. He, no, he was he was a learned. He was a book guy for sure. But I swear to God, his he had all of his books like upstairs on a second floor, and I thought he was going to collapse the damn house. The, like, whore, was, the floor, yeah. It sounds like it a fire crazy. hazard, if I'm being honest. Yeah. A lot of books. A lot of books. A lot of books. It's good to keep books around, though. Yeah. Speaking of books, that's all we have for the Lord of the Rings reference, uh, the first age references in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And that's, again, that's just first age. Re- there's second age references. Oh, yeah. There's actually um, Years of Trees references. Mm-hmm. I, I cut a couple things out of the outline that were uh, pre first age. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we'll do something like this again in the future for second age stuff. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Who knows? But just to tie things off with a bow, uh, you know, w- w- how do we feel about these? I mean, I love these references. I mean, these references throughout the Lord of the Rings are essentially what keep inspiring me to go back and reread the silmarillion yeah and uh we really love how these histories are entwined intertwined with each other it's beautiful yeah it's a work of art and also it's really really wild to me that there was literally no information on these references until the silmarillion was published in 1977 so like between the lord of the rings coming out and the and uh silmarillion coming out was over 20 years of darkness yeah so you re- even longer for the hobbit yeah so yeah. you'd be re- he's reading these books and seeing all these cool fucking references and just like man that sounds really cool uh, hope a, he writes a book about i wonder that. what i wonder <laughs> yeah. what that was about maybe yeah. he'll make a sequel one day and little did you know he had already had yeah. all these things written out just yeah. waiting for you exactly well guys 
I think that's pretty much it for us. Uh, tune in next week. We got uh, it's not like kind. Of, it's kind of like the beginning of a two-parter, but uh, we've got the Gollum character profile coming up. Yeah, and then followed by a review of the Gollum game. That's right. So those kind of go together. But next week will be the Gollum character profile. Week after will be the Gollum game, and yeah. we hope you guys enjoy those episodes. You're gonna learn all about Gollum. Stay tuned. Yeah. Thanks for listening to KOT Podcast, though. Subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes. And please rate us or give us a nice review if you like us. If you don't, you know, just move right along. And a big thank you, as always, to our patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. No way. Subscribe to us on Patreon to help support and get some exclusive content. That's patreon.com forward slash KOT podcast. We also accept private one-time donations. Uh, if you would like to go that route, just contact us somehow on whatever platform and we'll work it out. We have uh, PayPal and other services. And we'd like to ask you to take a minute to follow us on our social media platforms. Uh, definitely check out our Discord. I think that's where we're most active. You can have discussions and stuff with us. There'll mm-hmm. be a link in the description for you to check that out. Yes. Uh, follow us on TikTok at keep underscore on underscore Tolkien underscore podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we've got a companion piece that just came out about the, uh, the Faithful Stone. Yeah. yeah the, the Trevor Red. That I yeah, read for you guys. Mm-hmm. Check yeah. that out. Check the that Faithful out. Stone, the story about the uh, Druidane guy, right? The Druidane guy, yeah. Mm. Which, uh, Very cool tale. Yeah. yeah. Also check us out on Twitter at KOT Podcast, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash official keep on Tolkien. Uh, check us out on Instagram at keep on Tolkien Podcast. And uh, lastly, don't forget to check out our merch store. We got a lot of cool stuff on there. We've, we've designed it ourselves. Uh, we own it ourselves. It's a lot of really, you know, I love my shaft of yeah. I always talk about it. Yeah. Um, but the URL for that is keep on Tolkien podcast.tml.com. Yeah, please check that out. There's cool shit on there, guys. Go support your podcast and represent. Yeah, and represent, exactly. You'll be the coolest kid on the block with <laughs> everyone's everyone's gonna want to know where you got that obscure t shirt. So <laughs> But uh that's all for us guys. I'm Danny J. And I'm Joel N. And I'm Trevor D. And we are Keep, Keep on talking. talking. All right and God, it's hot in here. It's oh my, I'm sweating <laughs> up a storm, guys. <laughs>